Hello, I'm Jacob Jarvis, and this is Oh God, What Now? A normal podcast for normal people. Matt Hancock, if you're listening, don't. Coming up on today's show, as Damien Green regales us with tales of paddling in poo, Anne Widdicombe wages war on sandwiches and Lee Anderson simply exists, have we hit peak, it never did me any harm in British politics. Plus, as Sunak says legal migration is too high, who does he actually suggest we stop coming here to staff our hospitals and boost our economy? And a new survey finds that Brits are too tired to be healthy. What can our couch potato government do about that? Now, let's meet today's panel. Rachel Cunliffe is Senior Associate Editor of The New Statesman. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Suella Braverman, she's at it again. This time, the Fast and Furious Home Secretary had, she's asked civil servants to get her a private specialised speed awareness course, apparently. Can she just do whatever she wants? Because she feels like, you know, the sort of youngest sibling that the parents just can't be asked with anymore. Uh, basically... Yes. Uh, And the evidence for this is that after the papers reported her asking civil servants or allegedly asking civil servants if they could, you know, make this whole speeding offence thing go away Mm. or get her a private one-on-one course to save her the embarrassment, um, you've got all of the usual suspects on the right popping out and going, it's a conspiracy. It's because they don't like what she's saying on immigration. It's the blob. It's the woke woke blob. Uh, the least terrifying horror film villain ever uh, and that we're all making such a fuss about nothing and you try saying well, hang on, like one, it's the law but two, it's not the fact that she was caught speeding that's the issue, it's the trying to use the machinery of government, the civil service to get a service uh, in your personal life that is different from you know what anyone else would yeah. would get and there was also a sort of report that when she was first an MP she asked I- Ipsa uh, which sort of manages what, what politicians and their, their conduct and what they can ask for if she got a speeding ticket in the course of her parliamentary duties could she claim that on expenses? <laughs> No way. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's that for, the next scandal. That's, that's from a few years ago. So that's kind of the person that she is. But there's a sort of big game of chicken, I guess, going on when it mm. comes to Suella and Rishi, which is, is she going to quit? Is he going to sack her? How how long can she stay? What can she do before he sacks her? How many leadership bids does she have to make from uh, slightly dubious, dodgy yeah. alternative Was he damaged because, you know, he had the... He had the fixed penalty notice himself, and then he can't wear seatbelts, as we've seen as well. So, I mean, how much can he really stand against that, just on that sort of moral level, not even just a political level there? I mean, he paid the fine for not wearing mm. a seatbelt. Uh, and I don't think anyone here is arguing that a speeding ticket or a parking ticket or a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt sort of constitutes such a severe transgression that someone should be booted out of public life. The issue is very much what's he going to do about the allegations that she misused her office uh, and the answer seems to be have an inquiry about it because that's what we do in British politics now we just have an inquiry yeah. and hope it all goes away I'd say she's safe from the woke blob but if I've been really really woke I'd say blob sounds quite offensive actually they shouldn't really call us that they're body shaming our entire <laughs> podcast here as it were so <laughs> who knows uh, Yasmin Sirhan is a writer for Time magazine hello Yasmin hello you recently interviewed Keir Starmer for Time you can tell me after this where he goes to get his hair cut but in the public domain he told you that he's dictated less by ideology and more by practicality will that actually wash with voters or even Labour Party members though? Yeah it's a good question I mean I think anyone who's listened to Starmer for even half a minute um, over the past few months will probably have heard two very common phrases that he makes mission driven government and sticking plaster politics Mm. Um, the former of course kind of referring to sort of these kind of long term sort of goals that he has to sort of fix Britain from you know the NHS to to crime to the the economy Um, and sticking plaster politics of course referring to kind of having short term solutions to long term problems and I think both give a sense of what Starmer's trying to do, which is portray himself as kind of managerial, competent, uh, this kind of progressive problem solver in a way. Um, And I think that message is largely designed to appeal not to Labour members specifically, but to voters writ large, people who are tired of the Tories after 13 years. Um, I did ask your Starmer whether, you know, basically about those within his party, particularly on the left, would be quite upset with all the U-turns he's made, particularly with regard to his pledges that he made during the Labour leadership. And he basically said, if we simply appeal to the same people who voted for us last time or to our party members, we'll lose the next election. And that's the blunt truth of it. 
Um, and, you know, in fairness to him, whether that's right or not, I think is one question, but he may not necessarily be wrong. Um, and I, yeah. I think that's because even those who are deeply unhappy with Starmer, I don't necessarily see those people flocking to vote for the conservatives. Yeah. Um, I, I think many of them will probably just feel rather hopeless. I mean, you even have Owen Jones, political commentator, of course, who's very critical of Starmer, basically hoping for a hung parliament. Um, and I think that's kind of indicative of where Starmer is, that he's trying to portray this message of competence that appeals to voters at large, ideally people who do not vote for Labour. Yeah. Um, well, mathematically, he simply has to do that. Yeah. Really. And, and so I think that's what it's designed to do. I don't think it's designed to appeal to people who he already knows more likely than not are going to vote for him. It's this weird new alternative idea called trying to maybe win an election. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, which is rare. Novel. Yeah. <laughs> Our guest this week is the author of over a dozen books, including Things Can Only Get Better, 18 Miserable Years in the Life of a Labour Supporter, and co-host of the podcast We Are History. John O'Farrell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. John, you've just brought We Are History over to the ever-expanding Podmasters cinematic universe with a new series. Episode one is about radium. Tell us about the podcast. Uh, well, it's a sort of uh, laughable attempt at a history podcast. So uh, comedian Angela Barnes, who you might know from Mock the Week or the News Quiz, and I, we are both history nerds. We're not academic historians, but we, we love our history. So we take turns to read a history book or examine a particular subject, read several books sometimes, and talk to each other about that and make each other laugh along the way a bit. So the radium one, which we're, uh, is going out tomorrow, Angela discovered that, um, or via a book, read that radium was used as, as a health and beauty product when it was first developed. At the beginning of the 20th century, all these products were will make you look younger, will make you feel yeah. healthier. And people were taking these products and, of course, down the line were suffering the side effects of radium. And the reason we have, you know, Radox bath now and you look radiant, that all comes from that period when this was supposed to be really good for you. Well, in the radium girls, they thought it was trendy to be covered in the dust of it, didn't they? Yeah. After filling in the watches. And then I remember a horror story of one of their jaws, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that bit is where the comedy dies Way, yeah, yeah, but just the uh, the advertising of these, you know, companies yeah. is sort of extraordinary, um, and it's just a funny, light-hearted podcast that we need to get professional about. So we've joined the Podmasters family so that we stop losing money making it ourselves. <laughs> well, we're very happy to have you, uh, listeners. There's a link to We Are History in the show notes. Have a listen, but only after you've heard this episode of Oh God, What Now. Before we get started, it's your last chance to get tickets for Oh God, What Now? live at the Leicester Square Theatre this Wednesday, 24th of May. Ros Taylor will be joined by Alex Andreu, Arthur Snell and Marie LeConte for a gala evening of political squabbling. You don't want to miss it. If you haven't got your tickets yet, then maybe this will tempt you. We're having a bargain clear out of some of our classic merch in the interval with mugs and t-shirts at only a fiver each. Come down, hear the government torn to pieces and pick up a bargain too. What could be better to do on a Wednesday night? Visit leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. Patreon people, there's a reminder of your discount code in your inbox. It's entirely human to be engulfed in nostalgia, and the only solution is to learn to live with it. Maybe if we're lucky, nostalgia can be transformed from something sad and depressing into a little spark that sends us on to something new. Those words are from a short story that happens to be called Buried in Shit. Well, how about <laughs> swimming in it? That was the nostalgia which engulfed Damien Green in a recent interview when he reminisced on paddling in poo. This comes as baked beans and cheese sandwiches are framed as modern-day luxuries, the new avocado toast, perhaps, by supermarket-savvy right-wingers. Rachel, have we hit peak Well, it didn't do me any harm in British politics? We're literally at the stage of saying swimming in shit was quite good, actually. I mean, I, th I think we can go higher. I, I, I think. <laughs> no, I don't think There's we've. There's more left. I don't think we've reached the peak of it. Um, what we've reached is kind of panic stage. I think when it comes to the Conservatives, who have noticed that things are falling apart, whether it's sewage in our rivers and, and seas or mm. uh, the NHS, which you can't get a doctor's appointment or an ambulance to turn up, or the food prices, the costs are shooting up and people are in debt and it's all looking pretty bleak 
and they've just realised that they've been in power for the last 13 years and they can't blame it all on the last Labour government, which is kind of what yeah. they've been trying to do up until now. There was a lovely brief moment during the Liz Truss era where for a very short period of time, I can't remember who it was now, but somebody on the Truss team, might even have been Kwasi Kwarteng, tried to blame it on the next Labour government. No, <laughs> 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 so the markets are collapsing. It's not because of us. It's because they're all terrified of Keir Starmer I, being Prime Minister. There was a time on Newsnight once I saw a uh, conservative politician attack the liberal and he said well I think we can see what happened this is before the coalition I think we know we'll know what happened during the last liberal government and I was thinking was he actually blaming the current day liberal democrats for the you know assassination of Archduke Ferdinand and the <laughs> the world being plunged into the great war but, but that's the that is the level of of sort of desperation that we're at and there are kind of two things you could do when things are going really badly wrong and you feel sort of partly responsible one is sort of the hard way to say yeah we're going to fix it uh, yeah. in which case people say well why haven't you fixed it up until now but okay at least that's kind of vaguely constructive mm-hmm. the second way is to go well I think you're all very entitled for wanting it to be fixed anyway yeah. you know back in my day <laughs> we XYZ swam and whatever yeah. uh, so that's where it's coming from but no I, I do think that we probably do have heights of nostalgia to explore. I'm trying to think what that could be. Maybe it's like Lee Anderson and Jonathan Gullis come around offices stealing your lunch and (laughs) telling you that it's actually good for you. Do you want to know my my favourite Lee Anderson fact that I found out today? (laughs) He's just a year older than Kylie Minogue. So how how old is that? So he's 56 and she's almost 55. Mm. But this whole like idea that he grew up during the blitz <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, the keep calm and carry on thing doesn't quite work for him work. you were sat next to Anne Widdicombe when she said people who can't afford cheese sandwiches just shouldn't eat them yep. which is kind of easy when you've lived off of children's souls and getting attention over the last few years I suppose uh, you know that food staying isn't a reasonable price is basically what she was saying is that yep. you know we shouldn't be entitled to that that's an entitled thing to think Was she even more enraging in real life than watching her go viral on social media? Yeah, and I think you can see that from my face and the difficulty I have in that clip to keep my face under control. Um, And I usually usually get on with the people that I am on with on Politics Live, even if we disagree on politics, we can usually have quite an interesting, robust debate. She was interrupting and talking over everyone kind of from the very beginning, which was making everyone feel quite frustrated and and frazzled. But Mm. we kind of got to this point and the points she was making about food inflation were not all wrong. She was sort of pointing out that overwhelmingly it's driven by the war in Ukraine and how much food Ukraine used to export uh, and the issues also with energy. And it's not something that we're just feeling in the UK. Like there are shortages and there are prices are going up in Europe too, all of which is true. And then she kind of got to the point of, therefore, the government shouldn't do anything about it. And the reason Mm. the cheese sandwich came up was because that was the example that the BBC had outlined of a really, really simple, basic meal, just with like five ingredients and how much those ingredients had gone up. It wasn't, as you say, avocado toast. It wasn't kind of lobster ragu. It was something really, really simple. And that was just her reflex. Like, if you can't afford it, then you shouldn't have it. And I asked her about the fact that um, formula milk has gone up so much that there are lots and lots of new parents who mm. can't feed their babies because yeah. uh, not everyone can breastfeed. And, like, we've got a mass shortage of that. And she just didn't seem to hear the question yeah. that actually there are babies and young children and people of all ages in this country going hungry right now. And, OK, it might not all be the government's fault, but there is a responsibility yeah. there. The thing I find really infuriating as well is even if a cheese sandwich was a luxury, why the fuck are we not allowed to have any luxuries at all anymore? Why have we got a government that's saying, oh, no, actually, you should just not have anything you enjoy. That is that is yeah. not something you can expect as a human being. just sounds really desperate to me. She has a, a, a manner where she completely talks over you and knows yeah. more about you than, ever, than you could ever possibly uh, understand. And I uh, had it worse than Rachel, actually. I spent four uh, days with her in a hotel making Ooh. a TV program. <laughs> and, um, and I was too polite to not go to the pub with everyone, to go to the yeah. pub with everyone else. So I st- stood there talking with her at dinner afterwards. But we were making this murder mystery program and trying to solve this crime. And um, it involved lifting this uh, baby out of the cot uh, in the night. And I said, you could do that to a baby without waking it up. You could carry a two-year-old 
out of its cot and carry it downstairs. And, and especially if you knew the child, it wouldn't wake up. She goes, absolutely rubbish. You could abso- absolutely, the baby would wake up. And I went, well, I've, I've got two small kids, yeah. Anne. And um, uh, I can do that. No, absolutely not. The child would definitely wake up. And I had to stop myself shouting on camera. You've not even had sex. You, you, I've got two kids. You're telling me about kids and what they do. And you're a virgin. So shut up. But of course, I'm too well brought up to do that. So I went, well, interesting point of view, Anne. But I think you could. We'll agree to disagree. Well, it's a good but, job she'd banned you entirely from the minibar. So you hadn't had a drink, which could have encouraged exactly, you to maybe do exactly. that. Oh, my God. Yes, that would have been a, that would have been a memorable time uh, in a luxury hotel with Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> Yasmin, do sandwiches and branded baked beans just feel to you like another class signifier that Britain really doesn't need. It's really weird actually listening to this conversation as a foreigner. Um, I imagine to, to Brits as well, but I think particularly because these sound like extremely basic things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the fact that they're being framed, at least by some people, as these kind of luxuries. Did you is, even have baked beans? In we the US? so we were actually we, we having this, this discussion, discussion yeah. earlier, and I think so, but not like I think not they as exist. a staple, not as a like fundamental food stuff that you would have. Exactly. Like everyone's yeah. got baked beans in the back of their cupboard just mm. in case that, yeah. you know, yeah. Armageddon comes. Like I'm a convert now. I have them in my cupboard at home. Um, but I, they're not something I eat very often. And and same thing with cheese sandwiches. Just can't say. I mean, I was like a PB&J girl myself. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are things like it, it just strikes me as like I, living in Britain as long as I have now, nearly six years. Like I now know that these are just very common sort of staple things. It's the sort of thing I'd go to if I wanted to have like a cheap meal, yeah. like beans on toast. There's some nutritional value there. Great. Um, but but I think it's also just kind of highlights sort of just the state that Britain is in economically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in the U.S. of like the indicators of inflation and in like, you know, the New York one dollar slice is kind of the classic example. And I think we know from even at least a couple of years ago, it sadly is no longer a dollar virtually anywhere. Um, I guess the 99p flake is maybe the most like obvious thing. equivalent here and that that costs like three pounds now or something ludicrous but the bottom line being that these are like kind of basic accessible non-luxury yeah. items that are almost kind of quintessentially mm. like there's probably very few foods that are quintessentially more american no offense to italians do not take offense i don't even think you'd consider our pizza italian <laughs> than like a slice of cheese pizza like that's just yeah. basic and I, th- I think the fact that you know you you're not have british families in a situation where making like a cheese sandwich or even beans on like beans on toast or I don't know um, what's it called again I forget the way Brits say it a jacket potato, jacket potato I yeah. don't know how much that would cost but if you have like that and then beans I mean yeah. these things will just you know I think everyone's felt that yeah. you know your grocery list is suddenly costs way more than it once did so yeah I mean the whole thing is just a bit bizarre I remember when I was growing up my mum would literally always say to me if I wanted something that was a bit of a luxury and out of the realm she'd go oh well you know we can we can afford it we'll live off beans on toast for a week. And that would be her way of being like, well, that's how we'll save money to make sure we can we can get you the nice thing you want. You sort of you know lose out there mm-hmm. for that. And so that just it feels really yeah sad to me that that is actually something that it's not it's no longer that cheap sustainable thing which people can utilize as well to give them some extra breathing space too mm-hmm. instead of it being purely bottom line there as well. John, is this just all about the Tories deflecting from a problem that they they aren't competent enough to fix? I think that's probably a fair comment. Uh, 13 years in power, as Rachel said, means that uh, they have to look around and tr- look for someone else to blame. Uh, and there's always going to be sort of maverick voices who sort of come up with uh, crazy explanations for why things are not working. Now, you know, things like they can't say the Brexit word, uh, so they can they blame Ukraine or they blame poor people, which is the way that, yeah. you know, conservatives uh, normally find the blame. They go to uh, the victims of their policies and not the instigators of them. So... You're not managing, you know, this was, I remember um, Edwina Carey way back when in the sort of the 80s, she said, I don't know why people are complaining. They can have a jacket potato and it takes five minutes in the microwave. The microwave was the most luxury sort of kitchen item you can have. And yeah. everyone was howling that uh, she had no understanding of how ordinary people lived. So, uh, yeah, it's um, it is classic Tory deflection, classic Tory, uh, anyone to blame but us. I don't have a microwave at the moment because my landlords refused to replace it. So, oh. so they've actually looped back to being a really luxury item there. <laughs> I'm sorry as well. <laughs> I've got my grandfather's. 
Really? Wow. I, I'm, just, I'm just going to throw that out there because I know that like my sister's had one and it's broken recently uh, and I've got one that I think literally comes from the 80s or possibly the very, very early 90s it's probably and it's still going strong. Pancreas as you yeah, turn yeah. It on, Back you know? in my day, microwaves worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your yeah. kitchen just fizzing. Yeah, have a listen to our Radium podcast. <laughs> <laughs> John, on the nostalgia point, when is there ever going to be a cut-off? Nobody seems to go, well, medieval surfs didn't complain, did they? Yeah, we in the old days, we had rickets, didn't do us in the yeah. arm. It's a bit like that, isn't it? The thing I find weird about um, that nostalgia thing, it's so often, as you say, for a period before these people were born. So people talk about the war. And to have, to remember the war now, you've got to be pretty old. Yeah. So my, my mother-in-law is in her mid-80s and she talks about it, but she was like a child in the war. And yet there's this general thing about in the Blitz or on D-Day or Dunkirk. Yeah. And everyone's has this, well, the, the, the Tory right, have this nostalgia for a period which sort of ended about, you know, 25 years before they were all born. Um, and it's a bizarre piece of myth-making, really, that this is our, our shared national experience. And what's happened with the... I've just gone about the war. What's happened with the war? It's become our foundation myth. So you have yeah. 1776, the French have 1789, ours is being kicked out of France in 1940 and losing and uh, until the Americans and the Russians joined in. So, uh, but, you know, you can't, you, it's, it's a weird sort of thing that you can't sort of question the, the uh, uh, how their interpretation of the past has got us to where we are. And they've got a completely distorted history of Britain. Well, it's kind of ahistorical because I mean, even things like the keep calm and carry on slogan wasn't yeah. actually used. No, it was rejected. Was With that ahistorical kind of view of it, it's also kind of insulting to the past because people who lived through the war didn't live through the war so then that life could be shit exactly so they, they came out and they, they have elected a radical labor government so that things would be different and we you know built they, they not we they built the nhs and the welfare state my father was you know uh, alive at that period and he was not at all nostalgic about being poor in ireland in the 1930s he said it was terrible and when my middle class mum used to just going camping he goes contrived poverty why would you go back to living under canvas <laughs> we, we had all that when i was a kid you know so um yeah he had no illusions about it being very nice to have a central heating and to have enough food yeah. and to have a pair of shoes that you didn't share with your brother. Yeah. Um, and we shouldn't be nostalgic about suffering. And it's a sort of, it feels like these conservatives should always do it in the Yorkshire accent, in the in the, in the the spirit of the four Yorkshiremen from Monty Python. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, when I were a lad, we had you know, lived in all in middle of the road. It was, it's yeah. got that sort of element to it, hasn't it? Well, I've actually got a, uh, well, I had a very Northern grandmother. And yeah, she, you know, she raised four kids as a single mum in the 1970s. And, made no kind of bones about the fact that it was really hard and quite shit. Right. And so she wanted people's lives to be better yeah. beyond that. It shouldn't be... I don't. She never sort of thought, oh, so you guys should do that again to make sure that you have the virtues I, I have. I think she that, just taught us her virtues, which yeah, she'd learned. I think that's the reaction of people who've genuinely suffered. So I, when I, was, I remember when I was at university, there were two mums. There was a mother who had been... Uh, was Dutch and in occupied Nazi you know, Holland, and then another middle-class mum from Surrey. And she was, the middle-class mum from Surrey was always going, well, we always did without that when I was a child, so you should have to. And the mother who'd been under, you know, German occupation in Holland was like, we never had much bread, so I want you to have as much as you can have. And yeah. it's, a, it's an indication of what you've really been through, I think. That's a really good point, actually, because now that I think about it, it's like my grandmother, like, survived war and stuff, and she just overly feeds. Like, yeah. her response is <laughs> yeah, not yeah. to be like, well, yeah. you should experience it the way I did. Yeah. It's, it's this idea of, no, want to counteract that and make it better. Yeah. I think the problem is, is like, this is not something we should be aspiring to. Exactly. The way no. it's been framed is like, no. well, other people did it, so you should. Yeah, well. it's because the virtues are to be aspired to, but you don't have to learn those virtues for actually going through yeah. the shit yourself. That's the point of having <laughs> yeah. grandparents who can kind of <laughs> teach you those virtues. Yasmin, do you think having a stiff upper lip in the face of adversity, as we are constantly told in Britain, is just quite strange? Like, don't get me wrong. I think there are certain admirable elements of it. Like, you know, I feel like I think back to COVID, seeing the way British people kind of all banded together, really looked at, like, looked after themselves and their communities. It kind of felt like everyone stepped up um, in that way, like that sort of thing I find quite admirable. But yeah, this sort of harking back to history at every opportunity, I think, is a bit odd to to an outsider. And, and I think even the way it's kind of framed today, as we were just discussing um, to, to outside observers, I think kind of just rings as a bit kind of weird because you want to be like forward thinking. And, you know, the, the idea being obviously that, you know, your children and their children will have a better life than you did. But there seems to be 
it, it feels like, and this isn't just a limited to Britain thing. It kind of just feels like broadly, like the reverse is happening now. Like future generations, we might included, are not going to have exactly meet the, the levels that their parents or grandparents did. And I think that's what's concerning. Yeah, the the politics is all about those kind of stories, isn't it? And I suppose the Tories can't sell that story to people anymore, can they? You can only use it so much. And and I yeah. think, it, you know, knowing your history and learning the virtues of it is great. But to, to your point earlier, you don't have to live through the same crises to to appreciate those virtues. You can, you know, that's what history is for. John, are the Tories hoping they can breed their next generation through this sort of adversity? You know, Thatcher was big on pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Is they, Are they hoping that things... They can't make things better, but they can try and persuade people that, well, you could make it better for yourself by making it sort of a really individualised society like that. I did worry that that's what big, uh, the big society was about that David Cameron talked about a decade or so ago. And it was like, OK, we're doing away with the welfare state, but, you know, you can have a bring and buy sale and raise money at the NHS that way. Um yeah, they've got to find another narrative, really, to explain how they're going to uh, take us forward because the... Um, the idea of taxing rich people more uh, to pay for the things that we all need doesn't seem to be on their agenda at all. And it doesn't seem like the – I really don't understand why they, they struggle with that so much because it doesn't seem like a, a – you know, it seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah so I, I don't know really what that is inside their heads. Uh, um, but uh, I think if, if Labour can just, you know – keep sort of looking sensible and holding on to that vase and maybe we'll have a chance to see if there's an alternative way of doing things. On that taxing really rich people, I mean, one point about that is that being really rich is something that the Conservatives want you to aspire to. Mm. I mean, I think the people who are really rich who should be taxed so much are are billionaires, which realistically Mm. most of us simply cannot aspire to. But things like this iPhone I have right in front of me makes me feel really, really close to billionaires. Mm. And that maybe actually makes me think I can aspire to it. Is that sort of something that it's hard for the Tories to say to people like, no, you will never be as rich as Elon Musk, for example. I don't know if ordinary people think they can be as rich as Elon Musk. I think they think they might be a bit richer. Um, and every society has, uh, going back in history, has a sort of get out clause that stops people sort of rebelling. The, the Roman slaves had liberati at tie, which were people who would be freed. And it gives you one little bit of hope. There was a there was a way in which serfs could be uh, a relief from serfdom if they went to outside of their lord's manor for a, a year and a day. I think we have uh, the national lottery is our, is yeah. our little, our little uh, um, one in a million chance of escaping poverty. But you've got to give a little sort of uh, a tiny bit of hope for people to cling to. Rachel Widdicombe to me feels like quite a relic. And you know, she's not a member of the Conservative Party anymore. But does it feel like there's a growing number of people within the Conservative Party who do follow her kind of doctrine, as it were, you know, your Lee Andersons, your Marc Francois, your Jonathan Gullises of the world? So I don't think it's necessarily that there are more of them. I think it's that the ones who are there, who were always there, have become more vocal recently. Uh, And that is in part to do with the fracturing of the Conservative Party, a big internal fight over what it is, what it stands for. And that means that people on the fringes who didn't really get much attention beforehand now are. It also doesn't help that sort of on social media, if you're a Conservative MP, and you say something outrageous and you make a little video about how you went down to the food bank and everyone there was just eating takeaway the whole time, you can then get your story picked up on a number of new channels and it can go viral and then next thing you know you're in the cabinet, um, which is essentially what happened with Lee Anderson. So I, I don't think that there is a sort of a mass movement towards this. I think the aspiration stuff is really interesting. There's a word that we've just been tossing around like this, like the Conservatives don't have that that vision of aspiration for the future. Now, that's relatively new. Even Thatcher had this idea a lot in her messaging. I think the, the slogan was, um, don't just hope for a better future, vote for one. This idea that you should want your life to be better and those nice things you can want them and you deserve them and if you work hard you should be able to have them and you should be able to earn them for your children and they should be able to have a better standard of life that's a very traditionally conservative position so it's very very recent to go huh you want clean water to swim in and more than a crust of bread and a piece of cheese what's wrong with you like that's actually not what conservatism has been historically and i don't think it's that 
effective electorally either because okay a lot of the conservative voting base they are sort of over 65s and relatively insulated a lot of them from this because they own their houses they've had great housing wealth and they've got pretty good pensions so they're going to be fine but the conservative party knows that it needs people under the age of 65 to vote for them too and that's not a very compelling message and one of our new statesman writers who's called john oxley who you should definitely get on this podcast he's great he's a tory i'm not sure if you allow tories yeah yeah, Um, we've had them they're not completely banned they have to ask to be able to come through the door kind of like vampires yeah and you (laughs) have to you have to make sure that neither you nor the studio will combust as they they enter um but he wrote for us uh last week uh on exactly this and sort of said learn to live with it is not exactly a galvanizing election slogan and what the the risk for the Tory party is that they talk themselves into this doom loop where they go into the next election going, everything's shit, vote for us, which is yeah. not particularly likely to be successful. Yeah, it feels to me like we, it's like you said there, that we had we had a shit government, so it gets more shit because the people who can get into it become exponentially more shit. And then we just get into this complete doom spiral it's, it's, it's I almost mean, like we need an election mm. yeah <clears throat> i mean government. that point you make about um uh the Anne widdicombs and the lee andersons do they you know are there a lot of them in the tory party i think there's a lot of them in the membership of the tory party yes. and that's why they elect the leaders they do so if you think about the past few prime ministers we've had from the conservatives the maddest ones have been elected by the members boris johnson um liz truss and uh well their leader ian duncan smith who was never a prime minister when it Somewhat, if all goes horribly wrong and they just have to appoint a prime minister, they get Rishi Sunak and Theresa May, who are arguably the least mad of the of the uh, leaders they've had. So it shows you that trusting Tory members to pick the leadership of Britain is the worst possible thing you could do. Last week, Rishi Sunak said legal migration to the UK is too high. But despite his maths boffin credentials, he couldn't say what number wouldn't be too high. Perhaps Suella Bravman could just pick from a tombola and we'll go with that. Sunak might be the friendly face of hardline conservatism, but can anyone else hear that really high-pitched whistling sound at the moment? Rachel, is Sunak refusing to commit to a number because he simply can't think of one higher than zero that people he wants to pick eight would be happy with? Uh, and also he can't think of a number that is actually achievable uh, so that he won't get sort of hammered by it in, in a year's time when people go, you said it was going to come down to this number and it hasn't. Um, fundamentally, I find this whole conversation really, really odd. And I tried to say this actually on Politics Live with Anne Whittacombe and she was interrupting me. Um, <laughs> but the question that they had sort of running along the base of the screen was, uh, has the government lost control of migration? And the point is, no, the figures that we're going to get on Thursday are the result of the government's control on yeah. migration. They have control of the system and various parts of, of the Home Office and, and different departments have worked out how many visas they want to issue for refugees coming from Ukraine and Afghanistan and some elsewhere, but also work visas. How many people do want working in the NHS to come to be fruit pickers, to come be lorry drivers, to come be care workers? And do we want some of those people to be able to bring their families because if we don't offer them the chance to bring their families, they might not come and we need those workers? What about foreign students who are investing loads and loads of money in our universities and we can have a separate conversation about whether that's a sustainable productive model for higher education but basically they are literally paying to be in this country and all the different departments have gone yeah yeah we like that post brexit we can set our own set our own system points based immigration system have a list of occupations yep yeah, tick 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 and then you get to the end and the number is deemed too high by some sort of arbitrary psychological factor uh, and then everyone goes, oh, the government's lost control. No, this is what having control looks like. <laughs> Do you think Sunak believes anything he's saying on this? Or is it, as you say, just a way to reshape the narrative around his government? Uh, do, do I think he believes that migration numbers have to come down? I mean, no, he's a Silicon Valley technocrat. And the reason numbers are high are because the business department and the treasury need them to be high because we have all these shortages of of workers and there isn't a single area i mean maybe if you look at the ones who've come from ukraine and afghanistan although that kind of 
taking people there earns you a certain amount of soft power that you can then use on the world stage in, in various ways. But the, the work and the business visas and the student visas, like, they're there because the government has made an economic decision that it benefits us to have these people here. And Sinak knows that. And one of the really interesting things is looking at how much he has tried to put the focus on illegal migration and the people crossing the very, very small number. So we think the number of refugee figures are going to be around 700,000 when they're announced on Thursday. 45,000 people crossed in small boats. Now that's like a, a rising number and that's a policy challenge for all the reasons that we've talked about and it's very dangerous and we should be doing something about it. But it's like a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that bigger number, yet it's where all the political rhetoric is going. And the reason it's going there is because it's the one area where Sudak can say, we're being really tough and we're stopping the quote-unquote wrong people from coming in. Please don't ask me questions about all the right people that we are letting in, but that you inex- inexplicably seem to be very upset about. That's quite interesting that they've tried to put so much emphasis on the s- small boats and saying people really uh, feel strongly about the small boats. And Dover went Labour this month. And it's like they're right on the front line. The voters of the, of the people in that town where the boats are arriving you know, chose to vote against the Conservatives and kick them out. Um, there's another secondary scandal to all of this is that all those uh, refugees and asylum seekers are not allowed to work and we're desperate for uh, people to work. We have you know, qu- fully qualified Afghan doctors not allowed into the NHS and I think that's just policy written by the Daily Mail editorials. It's just crazy and it's such a, it would be such a simple change for an in- incoming government to make. I'm regularly baffled by how shit at being the Tories the Tories are (laughs) it's like they don't really want to be Tories they're just so bad at it and then I hear these things and I think this is this is exactly what you what you should be doing what Mm. you want to do this will bring in money which would seem to be your your whole thing that's your your whole shtick there Uh, Yasmin Tory MP Adam Holloway no, me neither. Uh, he said, who would think that a conservative government was presiding over effectively uncontrolled immigration? How hyperbolic is that? I, I mean, it's obviously a ludicrous exaggeration for, for all the reasons that everyone just mentioned. Um, I mean, of course, we know that freedom of movement no, no longer applies to Britain. And, and contrary to what many people appear to think, I, I can speak from experience, move, like getting to Britain, like being allowed to move here and work oh, here it's hard. is incredibly really hard. difficult and very expensive. I mean, many thanks to my past and current employer for sponsoring those visas, but like it's it's an expensive and costly process. So it's not, it's certainly not easy. It's not the case that Britain's doors are wide open. Um, it is clear, and, and I'm guessing this is what Mr. Holloway's comments were, that, that the Conservatives have overseen an extensive increase in, in migration over recent years. I think David Cameron's tens of thousands pledge came when net migration was I think around 250,000. And now, of course, you know, I think 2022 was over just over 500,000. And as Rachel mentioned, it's expected to be more. But I mean, net migration is also just such a weird metric upon which to base this because it doesn't, you know, you think of all the numbers that are going into it, quite aside from everyone who has visas, of course, and people who are coming that way. I think the people coming from Ukraine, Afghanistan, Hong Kong with the BNO visas, I mean, those are obviously huge. They do, you know, bring in a lot of soft power, of course, but also a lot of those people, one would imagine, I mean, certainly with regard to Ukraine, having spoken to Ukrainian refugees who live here, they are not necessarily keen on staying here. They're here because they have to, because it's safe. But I think, you know, there's certain numbers of these people who are going to return. And the other thing about net migration is if British people leave, it brings the net migration figures down. So you could end up theoretically where the net migration figures were zero because we'd taken in 700,000 people from all over the world and 700,000 people had decided to leave. Like, would would that make these people happy? Probably not. I'm just guessing. Probably not. On the point of it, kind of, you know, their whole thing seems to be that it unsettles communities and changes community dynamics. So, yeah, if you just switch the exact same number of people if you follow that thought process that exact same problem would arise so it clearly isn't about how many people there are but then i don't buy into the integration rhetoric yeah, either so none of it really seems setting, to make any sense to me the idea about there. setting communities and changing communities and what conservatives don't realize is that things were in a, in a massive state of flux when they were born and that first 20 years of their life 
was not how things had always been. So, uh, you know, in the end of the war, there were lots of Polish refugees here. There were uh, people who'd come over from uh, from uh, all over Europe after the war. Before that, there were Belgian refugees in the Victorian times. There were German bakers and before that, French Huguenots. It's always been a state of flux, this country. And people think there was this one moment that, that, that changed when the yeah. Windrush arrived. It's just nonsense. There's been a constant uh, uh, evolution of British uh, uh, population and it's ongoing and it's you know it's healthy and it brings um, not only wealth but skills but makes it more interesting god go back to the 50s yeah. and try and imagine what it was like <laughs> when there's only one sort of takeaway but, but, but also <laughs> I think very crucially and I think what's neglected is that it's also quite normal like I tried to look at the data to kind of see where the UK stands like is it only Britain that's being awash with, with immigrants or is it other countries and uh, this is from data in the 2020s but I mean I think the UK foreign born population was at approximately 14% no, foreign born some of these people would have immigrated to Britain and then maybe become British citizens as some of us are hoping to do um, <laughs> but, the, but you know the, this share is similar with the US in Spain in fact Australia Canada New Zealand they have more mm-hmm. uh People, uh, people who are for a, a bigger foreign-born population than the UK. So, I mean, these are other, you know, high-income countries. So, I mean, relative to its peers, the UK isn't exactly an outlier in in a significant way. Um, and I think that's just to the point that, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's it's necessary yeah. for our economy. It makes us wealthier. It just makes the country richer. And- on those, in a lot of ways. on those numbers as well with uh, refugees, as John mentions, when it comes to Ukraine, we're you know rightfully proud of the numbers we've taken in there. But how do we actually, Yasmin, compare to other countries on that as well? The, yeah, the UK has taken in, I want to say roughly 200,000 Ukrainian refugees, which I think makes it, we're going to exclude Russia for very obvious reasons, makes it, I think, the fourth largest um, home for Ukrainian refugees in Europe. So that's behind places like Germany and Poland um, and Chechia, I think. And so that's, you know, obviously huge and something that even Rishi Sunak, for all of his talk of of wanting to bring those numbers down, he says he's quite proud of. Um, and I think Britain should be, even when you look to things like the BNO scheme and, and with um, Afghan refugees coming here as well. So, I mean, the UK is stepping up in a big way and, and doing a lot there, which is good. For those white Ukrainians, <laughs> which is a big part of it, I'm afraid. I mean, the, 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 the different attitudes between welcoming Ukrainian mm. refugees and welcoming Afghan or Syrian refugees, yeah. it's really noticeable. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, not just from the government, but from various departments and aspects of our society. Rachel, according to the Migration Observatory, in the year ending June 2021, the most common reason that non-EU migrants gave for having originally moved to the UK was family. Again, on the Tories being shit at being Tories, are they not the party of family values? Well, there was this conference last week when uh, the main policy suggestion seemed to be that all Britain's problems could be solved if women just had more babies. Uh, this is Miriam Cates, Tory MP at the National Conservatism Conference. Uh, but obviously... The right people need to be having babies and and staying together. I think right leaning people, I suppose, they want as well. I think they (laughs) think that if they're the right people and they're having babies, they will therefore become right leaning. I think there's this idea that that's the natural trajectory. And one of the problems that the Conservative Party is facing up to is they thought that people, as they got older and had families, would start to become more conservative leaning and that hasn't happened and it's not happening to quite an alarming degree, mainly because of housing and that's creating a massive demographic uh, electoral challenge for them which is a sort of slightly slightly different issue but the family thing with the visas that we have this really I think mean-spirited idea that people who have got a visa to come here because they've got the skills that we need and we want them to come here we want them to study here we then want to make their lives as miserable as possible and what Yasmin was saying about actually what the process is like is somebody applying for a visa here and I've got I, I know friends who have been who have partners or spouses from different countries trying to do that trying to do the right kind of immigration the kind of immigration that the home office says is the good kind it's the legal kind you have a legitimate reason to want to get your residency or your visa here and we make it so so difficult and other countries make it difficult too I've heard it's even worse in Australia in America it's mm, also pretty terrible, yeah. yeah but the basic reason for it being terrible is that the Home Office, and I think other countries' Home Office equivalent, is kind of set up with the mindset that if you're trying to get into this country and you're not a citizen, something's probably wrong with you and it's our job as the Home Office to try and keep you out rather than the mindset being we want you to come here and we want to help you through that process. And that's why so many Home Office scandals just have this whiff of 
just unimaginable cruelty associated with them because that's the mindset they're working on. It's almost like they're sort of the the police of our state. There's a... a, the reason that the people in small boats has some political traction, I think, is because it doesn't look fair. People, the average voter thinks, oh, are they, are they pushing in? Are they cheating the system? But as Yasmin and Rachel say, if you try and do it the legal way, it's so full of obstructions. And the Home Office don't play fair. And they, they set up you know, unjust obstacles and will go, oh, if you leave the country on holiday and come back again, you you know, when your uh, application is processed, you are not allowed back in. They, they, put up all they sorts also of just lose barrier. documents. They lose documents. So it's, you know, if the public knew how unfair it was to do it the way that uh, Yasmin is trying to do it, then I think they might be, you know, more outraged. Yeah. And I'm mindful, of course, and I will just state this because it's the obvious, but I'm like coming from a very privileged background, being an American citizen, trying to speaking immigrate English, here. Yeah. English speaking. Yeah. I can only imagine what yes. it's like for anyone for whom English is a second or third language with any other background. Also having company sponsor you like I found it terrible I can't imagine well not terrible I found it difficult and challenging and and just bureaucratic um, I can only imagine how many others find thanks it. for sticking with it yeah, yeah. <laughs> John once upon a time you stood against Theresa May yes did you think things could get even worse than when she was Home Secretary do you know what she wasn't Home Secretary then she was Shadow Education Secretary that's okay. going a long way back is it 2001 I stood against her in my hometown of Maidenhead uh, and um, yeah I sort of um, I went back there and um, got rejected en masse by the people I grew up with, which was very therapeutic. She was um, she was a quite a deeply unimpressive politician, I thought, back then. I thought, you know, she just didn't seem to want to be bothered to uh, debate with me or, you know, in those debates in the church hall or whatever. She didn't really push back or have uh, any sort of facility for thinking on her feet. And I thought that's because she couldn't be bothered to argue with me. And then it turned out when we saw her fight a general election campaign, oh, that's actually what she is like. She really hasn't got that um, ability that most politicians have. Back then, uh, well, as I saw her, you know, into the Home Office and uh, put those vans around saying, you know, the, the, the racist vans, uh, you think, oh, this really is a new low point. But of course, uh, seasoned political activists like ourselves or observers like ourselves know that it's always possible to get worse. And you look at Trump in America or you look at what's happening in some, some of the countries in Europe like uh, Turkey or Hungary and you think, no, there is the capacity for things to get even worse than they are now under this government. So that's why we have to keep fighting. Are you concerned by how, since she's left politics, things have got so much worse that Theresa May has actually been, her record is actually framed in a much more positive light than it should be? So recently we did a podcast for The Bunker about George Osborne and David Cameron, who I think actually get given quite an easy ride at the moment. Do you feel the same about Theresa May? I do. I think that the, her, her, you know, the, the, her uh, attempt to manage Brexit was uh, disastrous. Her political uh, calculation of calling the election when she did was clearly disastrous. And I think her time at the Home Office was uh, set the tone for this uh, uh, environment that we've been talking about. So I think she was a, she did very bad things and nasty things um, for someone who you know dubbed the Conservatives the nasty party, and. Um, same for Osborne and Cameron with austerity. That was not a political uh, inevitability. It was a choice to make people poor and make them suffer that much for something that was not their fault. So, yeah, we need to, historians need to keep banging on about the damage that this successive uh, conservative governments have done this uh, country. And we have a very sort of, uh, you know, biased sort of um, public discourse in this country, which is set by the newspapers. And so, you know, in the moment Labour trip up over the tiniest thing, it'll be as bad as the quasi quoting budget. I remember the Millennium Dome being the worst thing that could have ever <laughs> happened. The amount of noise about the Millennium Dome. If I look back there with such fond nostalgia about... <laughs> <laughs> that being a bad thing, you know. Gordon Brown's handwriting was a terrible thing. <laughs> but uh, the toys get away with all sorts. In fairness, Gordon Brown's handwriting, I've seen it. It, it is, is terrible. It, it is, is pretty it diabolical. Is. <laughs> Absolutely, it is illegible. Remember when Liz Truss said she'd just hit the ground and forgot the running part? Well, it seems like a lot of us feel the same way at the moment. A new YouGov poll found that 35% of Britons feel too tired to lead a healthier lifestyle. Other people cite the cost of food and other costs related practically to exercising as barriers. Is this another cost of living issue the government is letting run away with itself? Yasmin, you did the Hackney Half at the weekend. Did you stay awake all the way until the end? Yeah, the pain in my knees made sure of that. Um, (laughs) I didn't stay awake much long after I was done, though. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. Gosh, yeah, it was really lovely. 
highly recommend it. I think if any of the politicians who kind of slag off people, Hackney and people who live in it, if they went there, they would be very into the borough. Did you find having something to to aim towards motivated you to to do that race? That is the only reason I signed up for these things. It's fear. Um, Because I know that if I'm scared... Um, well, it, it, it kind of works and it doesn't work. I, I sign up for races because I know that the fear of failing or not being able to complete them will scare yeah. me into training. So it's kind of an impetus to actually run and be somewhat active. The problem is that was my fourth hackney half. So this was – and it was also – I think the one – the only time I trained properly for that race was the first time. So once you lose the fear and think, oh, I've done it before, then you're kind of less yeah. galvanized into training very hard. I didn't train nearly enough as I probably should have done, but – for the people who are sort of too too tired for this, you know, we can we can joke around about the fact that we can't go on runs. I mean, I didn't do the Hackney Half. I was woken up by it and thought, how the fuck are people running at this time of day <laughs> with this atrocious dance music playing at the same time? But, you know, I admire you for that. But there is a serious point to this in that the cost of living crisis is going to have a really long tail problem. But particularly if we are, if we're less healthy now, younger people are less healthy people and older people are less healthy, that is going to put more pressure on a on an NHS and on a society down the line? Is this something that's sort of a ticking time bomb there, to use that phrase? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy, right? It's it's like when you're when you're burnt out, when you're overworked, when you're not, you know, those are the moments where it's so easy to, to not go for that training run, to maybe be like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow morning, and then you don't do it in the morning. I mean, I feel like when you're struggling, um, whether it's, you know, with, with the kind of the cost of being fit or just having the time kind of, you know, ba- work-life balance, that sort of thing. Um, fitness is often the first thing to go. And I think it will pay dividends down the line because obviously if, you know, <laughs> technically I'm told it's probably easiest to be fit and healthy when you're young. And so if yeah. you're not able to establish that kind of discipline early on, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is motivation will not be there every day. I mean, yeah. like motivation is not there for me most days. Um, <laughs> but having some sort of regimented ability like i'm gonna work out and do this then like that is what kind of saves you um and it's really hard to do that if you're you know you have to worry about a litany of other things whether it's affording a gym membership or you know working enough jobs to be able to to make ends meet if you look at the the history of um uh, weight in this country and you know across europe and 200 years ago the rich people were fat and the Poor people were thin, and now it's the other way around. It's like it's a tragedy that the, the overweight is a sort of problem of poverty, and the people who can afford to gym membership and skiing holidays are all the, all the rich people. Rachel, do you feel too tired to be healthy? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> next, next question. Yeah. Um, no, uh, absolutely, and uh, I. I haven't uh, managed to lose the weight that I gained in the first lockdown. I think a lot of people have yeah. that experience. It took me a very long time to do that myself. I, it's it's maddening. I'm just going to have to buy bigger clothes. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I'm finding really frustrating is I've got some kind of hip problem, knee problem. Not sure it's being looked into. It's been being looked into yeah. for the last kind of nine months. Um, and that's good. That's with like my GP actually helping to try and work out what's wrong. So every time I try and go jogging or go to a gym class, I will then have six days of agonizing back pain afterwards and trying to balance those two things. And I have tried saying to various healthcare providers, look, I'm young, I'm relatively healthy. If I'm getting this now and I can't build up those habits, like Yasmin was saying, and, and the discipline and the motivation, this is going to cause problems, more problems for the NHS when I'm older. And they go, yes, but we're dealing with people who literally can't walk at the moment and you can, which is you know, a, a fair enough response. So I think healthcare comes into it a lot. I think also just public spaces comes into it, this sort of privatisation of exercise space. Now, like we've all mentioned, needing to be able to afford a gym membership. What about football pitches and basketball courts that you could just book? Uh, what about like parks? The the fact that more and more of our sort of public land seems to be being privatised and you want to go for a long country walk while you're technically trespassing. There's a sort of change in mindset where exercise is now something that you have to pay to do yeah. rather than it being something that you can incorporate in our in our public spaces um which i think is having a, a real impact as well john this is a sideline historical question for you here yes. so sorry to throw it on you but has has exercise always been glamorized in history was it always a thing that was glamorized or in the past was it something that you know you you wouldn't do i think you wouldn't you do it in the past because you'd be working i mean before the industrial revolution you would have 
not needed exercise because you've been working the fields yeah. all day. Uh, and then when the Industrial Revolution came along, there was no time to do any exercise and you were too hungry and tired to do anything like that. So it's quite a modern phenomenon, uh, the idea of a spare time in which to do these things and the idea of um, of fitness. It sort of comes from sort of probably Victorians, I think, the beginning of the cycling and the sort of uh, the boxing yeah. and the sort of um, healthy, you know, uh, the eurythmics that the girls would do at the, at the public schools, of sort of dancing to music and stuff <laughs> to keep fit. And yeah, it came then, of course, in the 30s with the slightly sort of fascistic overtones of the sort of healthy body and pure spirit and, you know, uh, the master race. So that's, that's thankfully we've moved that to one side. Uh, Rachel, adjusted by gender, 29% of men said they were too tired to be more healthy, but 40% of women said they're too tired to be healthy. Is this a factor which perhaps, again, also goes under the radar when it comes to, to women's health here, this sort of show where the maybe the balance of workload within homes is being shared? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, if you've got one partner doing the vast majority of unpaid labour, the second shift, as it's called, both people are working full time and then one of them is handling all the childcare and housework, that's less time for exercise and less time for staying healthy um i'm wary of going too far on that direction though because i think fundamentally when it comes to difference in healthcare outcomes what seems to be the defining feature is health providers just not listening to women yeah. and not um take not actually taking what they say seriously and the uh response so often being you know we'll try and lose some weight which is actually something that men get as well um but i I have a condition, I've got PCOS, and I went to the GP and said, should I be worried about this at all? And she sort of didn't even glance at me, didn't look at my stats or anything, just went, well, that puts you in a slightly higher risk category for type 2 diabetes, so maybe try and lose some weight. You don't know how much I weigh, this is before the mm. pandemic, I should say. You don't know how much exercise I'm doing. You don't know anything about me, except that's your your kind of go-to solution. And I think lots of women kind of get put off engaging with the healthcare system at all particularly if they know that they are slightly overweight or they could be healthier because if that is the first thing a healthcare provider sees and fixates on you can't trust them to be able to handle your care appropriately um I basically, I, basically what i'm saying is i don't think it's as simple as husbands and dads taking the kids for a night so that mum can go to the gym It's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for the soothing mental balm of escape routes. What are the things that have been distracting our panel this week? Yasmin, what's yours? So I'm in the middle of reading uh, Ben Judah's forthcoming book, This Is Europe, which kind of, if you've read This Is London, um, which is very good, um, is very similar. It kind of tells the story of Europe through a series of like these very vivid um, and incredible portraits of, of people living in it. So yeah, I'm in the middle of that and it's very good. Uh, Rachel, what's yours? I can't follow that. That was incredibly highbrow, and I'm going to go <laughs> so lowbrow. I'm the same person who says Love Island very frequently on this podcast, so <laughs> don't um, worry. <laughs> I'm going to get into trouble for saying this as well because of all the reasons, but all the Harry Potter films got put on Netflix, and I have been re-watching them uh, and, because they are joyful to remind me of that particular time in my childhood, but also they are so bad and they do not hang together at all. And the thing that I've noticed is that all of these films were made at the height of Pottermania and there was this assumption, you can see it in the films, that every single person in that cinema would have read the books probably more than once, so knows the plot already. If you come to it and think, okay, someone who hasn't read the books... They make no sense. The plot <laughs> holes are massive. Uh, and I, I feel like they should be studied as their own little thing, as a kind of, this is what happens when you make films at a time of obsession. They do not age well at all, <laughs> but they are quite fun. Uh, John, what's yours? Um, I've just been reading uh, Fintan O'Toole's uh, sort of part memoir, part history book, We Don't Know Ourselves, which is about his life uh, time, I suppose, in Ireland. And it's incredible it's an incredible read it's, i really recommend it as a book but it's just shocking when you think how what a papal theocracy ireland was in the 50s 60s and 70s right up to the 80s and 90s and how they brought in a constitutional ban on abortion in the 80s and they uh divorce was illegal women had to leave work if they got married if they worked in the public sector you couldn't be a married teacher and this went on for decades and he 
tracks the journey of Ireland rejecting Catholicism, rejecting Fianna Fáil, rejecting um, their sort of um, uh, insular, we'll do it differently to the Brits sort of mentality that sort of oppressed them in such a terrible way sort of for sort of half a century after independence. Um, so it's been fascinating to watch, you know, uh, that country emerge as someone who's sort of half Irish and I have an Irish passport and I go there a lot. So to see to remember what it was like and to uh, and to see it now and to track that journey from a great Irish writer has been a pleasure. And now there's the drum roll, Rachel, to see whether I'm going to be highbrow or, or lowbrow. I'm, for once, I'm going highbrow this week. I'm going, I, uh, I stay I'm in the hotel. I'm not going to get invited back. No, you, you will, you will. But, you know, maybe we'll put you on some sort of short slot. We'll just do a, a new sort of <laughs> trash podcast, a trash version of this. Uh, I went to, I went on holiday last week and the hotel I stayed at had a really nice room which had a record player in. And I really predictably, for like a 30-year-old guy, have now decided that vinyl could be quite cool. So I've been going to charity shops fishing through vinyl and I managed to get blue velvet for a pound yesterday which also being predictable uh, because of the David Lynch link I quite like so that's been my my way of escaping reality a little bit and that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God What Now thank you for joining me to Yasmin Sirhan thanks for having me Rachel Cunliffe thank you and John O'Farrell thanks a lot Podmasters is really happy to be bringing Season 7 of We Are History to a podcast provider near you. If you're listening on Tuesday, it's out today. We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. And don't forget, we're live on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday, 24th of May. Visit leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. We'll see you there. In the meantime, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis with Yasmin Sahan and Rachel Cunliffe. The group editor was Andrew Harrison and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Our direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Oh God, What Now.